Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. I'm your host, Sarah Sin, tackling horror movies, peeling back the layers, and taking a deeper dive into them. Again, on the show, I don't just discuss my love of horror movies. I like to bring in the aspect and perspective of horror and history, how horror movies tend to reflect society's fears. And since I am a psychology major, I like to bring this aspect and perspective in as well and see how the horror movie I'm focusing on reflects psychology and mental health in any way. Okay, so first I want to apologize for my voice. I've been fighting whatever my babies had in my room for like three weeks now. And because I have asthma, everything's always at a 10. So I can have a cold, but my cough always sounds 10 times worse than it actually is. I'd also like to say Merry Christmas to everyone. It is actually Christmas Eve as I am recording right now, but I will upload tomorrow, which is Christmas Day. Also, make sure you all wish um, Miss Barbara Crampton a very happy birthday because her birthday is the 27th, and this is the whole reason why I'm doing my, one of the reasons why I'm doing my Barbara Crampton Appreciation Month is because this is the month of her birthday, so I wanted to dedicate the whole month to her. So make sure you wish her a happy birthday. Last, um, I got to tell you about my shit show of a week I've had. It was just, oh my God, not even work-related. This was all just like... Was it Murphy's Law, I guess? Like, I don't even know. But Tuesday, I had to leave work and bring my daughter to urgent care because she told Grandpa she didn't want to go to school. She didn't feel good. There, normal temperature, like 98.5. She's fine. They just said she probably has RSV, you know, and you have to treat it like a cold. There's not much they can do. So I take her home, and eventually she lays down for a nap. And when she wakes up from her nap, I was just rubbing her on her back and I could feel the heat radiating off her body through the blanket she had on her. And I brought her downstairs 102.3 and I was like, oh my God, you have a fever. Okay, so we got to figure this out. And then I had to call my boss and I had to take Wednesday off because I was like, well, I got to stay home with her. You know, I can't really, you know, leave her with grandpa today. She needs mommy. So I stayed home with her. I've been coughing a lot too. So we're both just sitting there hacking up a lung. We sound like chain smokers in this house. And then, so I did go to work on Thursday because I was like, okay, she's feeling better. Um, she just keeps hovering around this low grade fever. So I'm like, okay, this is, this is fine. Uh, she can stay home with grandpa. I'll just skip break and come home an hour early, which was what I did. And then yesterday, which was Friday, so work on Thursday, I wake up Friday, 9 a.m., our power goes out. Our entire town is out. In fact, multiple towns in the state of Vermont were down because of trees that fell on the power lines. So we were out of power, and we had no idea when it was going to come back on. So about 5 o'clock in the evening, with the power still not on, and the temperature's dipping down into the, the like, 10 degrees. It was supposed to be, like, 10 or 12 degrees last night. I said, you know what? I'm getting a hotel for me and my daughter. I can't, you know, have her sleep in this, you know, really cold house. So we ended up getting a hotel last night, which was nice, but it was still kind of like money I don't have, but I had to spend it anyways because I wasn't going to let her sleep in a freezing cold house, especially with her being sick. So we went last night and when I woke up this morning and asked my dad, he said, no, the power's still off. It's not going to turn on until or be fixed until 2 p.m. And I was like, oh, my God. I really, like, what if they don't? I was like, I might have to spend another night in a hotel, and my poor daughter's going to freak out and cry because she's going to be like, how's Santa going to find us if we're in a hotel? We're not even home. And I was like, and I don't want her not at home on Christmas. So luckily, the power is on. It finally came back on. The house is finally warming up. I'm crossing my fingers that it stays on so my daughter can just have the Christmas she deserves. So that was kind of my week was just like sick kid, like out of nowhere, just boom sick. Um, so I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not mad about it. It's just the idea of like sick kid, boom, and then power out for over 24 hours. I was just like, oh my God, like this is just, uh, anyways, that was the week I had. Luckily, I don't have to go back to work until Wednesday next week. So next week, I only have to work on Wednesday and Thursday, and we have Friday off for the New Year's. And then on the second, I go back to work full time again. But it's kind of nice that I have like a five day weekend, and I only work two days next week, and then I have a three day weekend, and then it's back to work. So this is kind of nice. It's just like this nice, mellow time after the week I had. I'm like, I deserve this mellow week now. So, anyways, like I said, Merry Christmas to you guys. I hope you all have a happy holidays. And again, reminding you, to wish Miss Barbara Crampton a happy birthday this month in a few days, okay? So I'm going to move on to the last movie for the theme of representing the 802 
Barbara Crampton, woohoo, with 2011's You're Next. I mean, <laughs> what way to celebrate, you know, Christmas than a slasher flick about a family dinner and people being murdered during a family dinner. I mean, this is definitely the way to celebrate Christmas. So, 2011's You're Next, directed by Adam Wingard, uh, starring Sharni Vinson as Aaron, Nicholas Tucci as Felix. Again, sorry if I said any of these names wrong. Wendy Glenn as Z, A.J. Bowen as Crispin, Joe Swanberg as Drake, Margaret Laney as Kelly, Amy Simetz as Amy, Ty West as Tariq, Rob Morin as Paul, and the amazing Barbara Crampton as Aubrey. So for horror history, I would say this definitely reflects on like the upper middle class, like wealthy families. Um, these people definitely aren't part of the 1%, but they're definitely not working class and they're definitely not middle class. They definitely have money and they have plenty of money. Um, it also reflects on the seven deadly sins, how it corrupts people, consumes them. I think this can also be seen a little bit as a metaphor for the 1%, always wanting more. What they have is never enough. And also, I think this, I like the fact that this kind of like is knocking down the final girl trope, like turning it upside down. Um, I'll get more into that, but I definitely think it reflects on that, the whole like final girl trope, but it's like turning it a complete 180. Psychology and mental health, we got depression, anxiety, narcissism, life or death situation, fight or flight, dysfunctional family structure, nuclear family system, codependency, substance abuse, anger issues, and of course, wrath, pride, sloth, greed, gluttony, envy, and lust. So what is this movie about? In order to celebrate their 35th anniversary and reunite their estranged family, broken family ties, Paul and Aubrey invite their children, Drake, Felix, Crispin, and Amy, along with their significant others, for a weekend at their vacation home. Things seem to be going in the right direction until a group of mysterious killers donning animal masks crash the party and start killing the family members. As the night turns into total chaos, Aaron, Crispin's girlfriend, springs into action, taking charge, forming weapons and traps to fight back. Will anybody make it out alive to live another day, or will they all be picked off one by one? Okay, so moving on to the subgenre. I would most likely say that, or I would actually put this movie in the slasher flick subgenre with kind of like a home invasion undertone. Now, I know some people consider home invasion to be its own subgenre. I personally do not. For myself, home invasion tends to piggyback on another subgenre like psychological horror, slasher flick, creature feature, um, even found footage at times. Home invasion is just kind of like how it sounds. It's unwanted, uninvited people who enter one's home and start to terrorize the people who live there or staying there. Sometimes these unwanted guests are actually invited in, the people thinking they're good people. Other times these unwanted guests actually barge in and start stalking and killing the people. Either way, I put home invasion as more of an undertone, like more of a kind of like a subplot instead of its own subgenre, kind of like revenge, like I know some people consider revenge um, horror films to be its own subgenre. I put it more as like an undertone, as a subplot. So that's why I say like this movie is a slasher flick with a home invasion undertone. So I'm going to go over the definition of slasher flick. Slasher flick. This subgenre is one of the most popular of the horror genre that exploded in the 80s. The most iconic horror villains, Freddy, Michael, Jason, all come from this subgenre. This subgenre usually involves a killer or killers who tend to wear a mask, stalk and kills people, mostly teenagers, because they were partying, drinking, doing drugs, and having premarital sex. Many killers from this subgenre are seeking revenge against those who have done them wrong. In most of these movies, there is a final girl who must take on the killer for the final showdown. In this subgenre, the body count is usually high, and the deaths tend to be inventive, bloody, over the top, and they don't skimp on the gore. Okay, so the first thing I'd like to talk about is the actual family themselves, like their family structure. Now, this may be a nuclear family, but this is also a dysfunctional family, proving that, you know, the nuclear family isn't always the idea, like the ideal family structure. Nuclear family is defined as a group of people who are united by ties of partnership and parenthood and consisting of a pair of adults and their socially recognized children. 
Typically, but not always, the adults in the nuclear family are married. That's Encyclopedia Britannica. So in short, a nuclear family is like two adults, you know, the parents and their children. And this is considered like the, quote, traditional family. This is what people tend to like focus on or think about when they talk about, quote, traditional family values. They're talking about the nuclear family. Um, But just because, you know, this family is a nuclear family, it doesn't mean it's a working family system, a strong family structure. This is actually a dysfunctional family that right off the bat, we learn kind of just how much this family, well, are not fans of one another and they don't really get along. So like I said, um, this movie is a new, uh, sorry, this family is a nuclear family, but it's also a dysfunctional family. So I kind of like how it's kind of saying like, hey, here's your nuclear family, but um, doesn't always mean that that's, you know the right way to go kind of thing. Like, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with being a nuclear family, as I was saying, but I just like the idea how a lot of times people are like, nuclear families, it's a traditional family, traditional family values, and this movie's kind of like, yeah, here's your nuclear family, but it's a very dysfunctional family. So I just kind of like how it's turning that aspect a little bit on its head. So, and like I said, right off the bat, we understand that these family members don't really get along and don't, I don't know, they don't really like each other, I guess. So we have a mother who's suffering, definitely suffering from mental illness, that it's very obvious um, to some of the children. They're not happy about it. They're not very supportive. You know, we have a father who seems to hold very high standards of his children. And we have a group of greedy children who don't get along and kind of act like they're owed something. So that's kind of what it is, is like, We have a mother who's suffering from mental illness and children who obviously kind of feel shamed about it, which is really sad to see. We have a father who seems to, like I said, hold very high standards for his children. And then we have a bunch of greedy children who think like the world owes them something. So that's kind of like what I mean by this family's kind of being dysfunctional. Um, So I'll go over a few scenes again. You know, I'll go over a few scenes, explain what I'm trying to explain and then, you know, summarize it at the end, you know, take my deep dive. So Towards the beginning, we have one of the sons, Crispin, and his girlfriend, Aaron. They're in the car, actually headed to his parents' house for their family get-together for his parents' 35th anniversary. Aaron, so your parents are pretty loaded, right? Crispin, yeah, I guess. My dad retired from KPG last year and got an insane severance package. Aaron, wait, KPG? As in the defense contractor? Crispin, yeah. It was just in marketing, though. Why? Is that a problem for you, babe? Having dinner with fascists? Aaron, no, no. I want to meet your family. I hope this means that there's going to be some good booze at the place, though. Crispin, probably not. My mom's on medication. Aaron, can we stop somewhere and get some then? Crispin, yes, we should. Good call. Aaron, yes. So while Crispin actually explains that his mom is on medication, it's, and it's a very quick line, he just says, probably not, my mom's on medication, he sounds almost like he's ashamed to tell Aaron about this, like Aaron's going to judge him and his family based on the fact that his mom takes medication, implying that she suffers from mental illness. And you got to remember that this is a shame in some families, sadly, like it's very, that's all I can say is it's very sad that in some families, um, mental illness is seen as shame and bad for the family. You know, some families are ashamed when they have mentally ill family members because it makes the family, quote, look bad. You know, many families hiding those members away or disowning them completely, which is just awful to do. I mean, if someone suffers from mental illness, they need encouragement, support, and compassion not tossed away and shamed. Now, like I said, this family isn't like that. They're not tossing away people. But it's obvious that Crispin is very uncomfortable telling Aaron this thing about his mother, about how she takes medication. Again, almost like he's ashamed to admit his mom has mental illness and takes medication for it. So that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like He's talking about this medication, but it's implying she suffers from mental illness. But the way Crispin says it is, you know, he's almost ashamed to tell Aaron about his mom taking medication because she she suffers from mental illness, almost like Aaron's going to judge him or something. And like I said, it's very sad that 
some families are like this, instead of being compassionate towards these people who suffer from mental illness, they tend to um, feel shamed by them. And we do see um, by some of the way like Aubrey acts that she does suffer from mental illness. And I'm kind of assuming that, or kind of like the movies implying that she suffers from like depression and anxiety. She's just very jumpy and anxious. Like towards the beginning, Aubrey hears a noise um, upstairs and she asks Paul when he comes around the corner, if it was him upstairs making that noise. And he's like, no, I was in the basement. And she immediately starts to panic. Like she's like, oh my gosh, someone's in the house. And then she's like, we have to leave this house. We have to leave this house now. And she ends up going outside into the um, driveway. And Paul goes upstairs to go look around. And he runs into Crispin. And Crispin even states, he's like, not to get off on the wrong foot here, but um, why is mom in the driveway crying? So we have that kind of moment where, like, she just all of a sudden gets very jumpy, very anxious. Yeah, I mean, it is scary to, like, think someone could be in your house. But also it's like... You just invited your entire family, all your kids and their significant others. I mean, one of them could be in the house making that noise, but she's just very jumpy, very anxious. So for me, I think the movie's trying to imply that she definitely suffers from some kind of like depression and anxiety. And also, um, after Tariq dies, um, which is Amy's boyfriend, and then Amy, the daughter, actually dies, Aubrey has a complete meltdown, which I definitely understand. Like, she just starts crying and panicking. Um, which again, I totally understand. I'd be that way too. But Paul's like, I'm just going to bring her upstairs and lay her down. Like that's his idea is like, that's how I'm going to fix this problem is that I'm just going to bring her upstairs, lie her down on a bed and cover her up. And then he ends up going back downstairs and leaves Aubrey alone in her room, just crying, panicking and having a total meltdown um, because she just witnessed her own child die. So I'm not saying that means she has mental illness, but it's the way that she has this meltdown that I think it's supposed to be implying that this is caused by her mental illness that she suffers from. And I think it's definitely implying that she suffers from depression and um, anxiety. So she does suffer from something. And like I said, Crispin definitely seems very ashamed of this and almost, like I said, doesn't even want to tell Aaron about it. Again, let me remind you that if someone does suffer from mental illness, I myself suffer from a lot. They need encouragement, support, and compassion, not to be thrown away and shamed. So later on, Crispin is actually talking to his father outside. And this is um, kind of the example I'm trying to give of how Paul holds like high standards for his children. Paul, so how did that fellowship thing turn out? Crispin, oh, um, not so good. Paul, no? Crispin, no, uh, I guess there were a lot of applicants this year, and I haven't exactly been published recently, so... Paul. Well, there are some people who aren't published that did get the fellowship, you know. So on the surface, it almost sounds like Paul is trying to tell Crispin that, like, he had a chance, just like all the other people who applied for this fellowship, and kind of not to be so hard on himself just because he hasn't been published recently, but... That's kind of like on the surface, but I think um, what Paul really is saying, and you can tell by pretty much what he's saying in his body language and his facial expressions, even in Paul's calm voice, it almost sounds like he's putting Crispin down in a way. Like, you know, well, others who haven't been published have gotten that fellowship, so you'd have, you know, you could have gotten it as well. You had a chance also, but, you know, you blew it. You know, like, it, it almost kind of comes off like that, at least to Crispin. It, I think that's how it comes off as, is that, you know, his dad's being like, yeah, you blew it again, son. You know, really, what's going on is that, personally, what I think is going on is that Paul is saying one, maybe saying one thing, um, meaning something to him, like he's hearing it one way, but Crispin's kind of hearing it completely different. Kind of leading me to believe that this is something that occurs often in this house. You know, this is a well-off family, a family with money. They have an image and a dad probably, you know, who wanted to make sure his children upheld that image and make them look good. I'm guessing dad might have been maybe a little tough, had very high expectations of his children. Like, no doubt he loves his children. 
but he might have held kind of like held them to a very high standard that was difficult for some of the children to achieve. Again, I think when we see that scene between Paul and Crispin, maybe Paul is trying to come off one way, but Crispin's hearing it another way. In Paul's mind, he's saying, you know, just because you weren't published recently doesn't mean you didn't have a chance. Like, you you definitely had a chance. Don't beat yourself up. But what Crispin's hearing is, you know, oh, son, again, just because, you know, you haven't been, you know, recently published, you blew it again. Did you even apply yourself? And that this is something that might happen a lot in this house. Or maybe Paul really does hold his kids to a very high standard and he needs them to hit these achievements. And if they don't hit these achievements or if they don't hit his standards, then that makes him look bad in a way. So again, I mean, this is just me looking a little deeper. Of course, I could be wrong. But again, like I said, I do believe Paul absolutely loves his children, but I think maybe he just holds them to a very high standard. And for some of them, it's hard for them to achieve that. And in return, you know, makes them look down upon themselves. Okay, so moving on, we do learn, or at least it's very heavily implied, that it's been a long time since the entire family has gotten together. I'm assuming they don't even really see each other, like, at all, even during the holidays. Um, They have a very strained relationship. This family is distant from one another, um, like I said, almost estranged from one another. The family doesn't take time to get together, like, all them together under one roof. And like I said, it's a very, like, strained relationship between them, between one another. You know, Aubrey even says, as everyone starts to show up, like, for this big dinner party, um, she says, I just want you all to know how much it means to us that you're all here. So thank you for coming. Like, she even has to make sure she thanks them all for actually taking time out of their schedule so they can all be together under one roof for once because it's been a while. And you can tell when Aubrey says this, that this means the world to Aubrey to like have her whole family together under one roof celebrating their anniversary. But again, this is implying that it's been a very long time since something like this has happened, since all the children have been together under one roof. And another reason why I do say this is a dysfunctional family is because when shit starts to go down, like Tariq is the first one to get killed. Everyone fights and argues with one another instead of trying to work together against the killers. Like, right after Tariq is killed and Aaron kind of, like, gets everyone safely into another room, they all kind of, like, start talking about how someone should make a run to the cars, like, go and get help. You know, someone can drive the car to the door and get everyone in there for a clean getaway. And they all just start arguing over who should be the one to run. Like, Crispin says it should be him. I think he says something like he used to run track. And then Drake, like, calls him fat or something. And then, like, Amy says she should be the one who starts running. Like, they all just start to argue with one another. They all, like, (laughs) I understand this is a very serious situation, like a life or death situation. But to me, if this family was closer, they'd be trying to work together in order to survive. But because this is such a uh, dysfunctional family working against one another, they're arguing instead of banding together. Like, they just start arguing over who should be the one to run. Like, it's just this huge argument of people screaming and yelling at one another, basically. Another example, like, later on about how I feel like this is dysfunctional and, like, the whole fact that they just start arguing and screaming at each other, like, that's their first response to one another, is Drake and Felix are actually in the basement looking for weapons. Drake, does anybody know where Crispin is? Felix, no, he ran out right after Kelly did. Drake, I gotta go look for him. I at least have to try. I can't leave Kelly out there. Felix, what do you mean? Drake. Kelly is dead. Drake. What? Felix. Kelly's dead. You didn't know that? Oh, God, look, I'm sorry. I didn't want to have to tell you like this, but she got killed. Her body's up there on the floor right now. Drake, I'm sorry, I... Drake, shut up! Felix, shut up! Shut up! Stop talking! And then Felix actually stabs Drake. Felix, I'm sorry. He stabs Drake, like, multiple times. Would you just die already? This is hard enough for me. 
So not only does like Drake start yelling at Felix, but then Felix straight up kills his own brother. Like, again, I understand that Drake just found out his wife is dead, but his reaction is to start screaming and arguing and yelling at his brother. To me, if they had a close relationship, he probably would have resorted to like screaming a little bit at Felix. Most likely he would have said something like, this isn't true, or you're lying, or tell me this isn't true. Where Felix would, you know, grab Drake and hug him and they would probably cry it out. But Drake's reaction is to become very hostile and yell at his brother. Again, telling me that this is a family that has a very strained relationship. Like, showing more of how dysfunctional this family really is. Not to mention the fact that Felix just straight up kills his brother. Like, he just stabs him multiple times with multiple weapons without any hesitation. He just starts grabbing different, you know, weapons and starts stabbing his brother and to top off this kind of like idea of how dysfunctional this family is we learned that Felix and Crispin planned this whole thing they hired three people to murder their entire family so they can get their inheritance sooner Felix and Crispin are like so greedy and self-absorbed entitled little brats that they plotted together to murder their entire family except for Z, Felix, and, you know, Crispin and Crispin's girlfriend, so they could get their inheritance because they just couldn't wait for their parents to just die naturally in order to get it. They wanted their money now. So this is what I mean by this is just different aspects showing how dysfunctional this family really is. These are just examples. So to summarize, like, I believe we have a very dysfunctional family structure going on here like even though again they're a nuclear family the quote traditional family you know quote traditional family values idea doesn't mean they're a working family they have a very strained relationship with one another obviously hold grudges against one another especially the children against their parents and against each other to the point that when shit goes down and things turn into chaos they choose to argue with one another instead of trying to band together to survive. They just start arguing and to the point that two of the siblings decided to scheme together and plot to murder their entire family for money. So these are, I hope this all makes sense of what I'm trying to say about how this family, it may be a nuclear family, but they're a very dysfunctional family. Okay, so next I'd like to talk about how the siblings and their significant others represent the seven deadly sins plus hope. Aaron, Crispin's girlfriend, and our final girl represents hope. The others, Crispin, Drake, Kelly, Tariq, Amy, Felix, and Z, to me, all represent the seven deadly sins. Now, most of these characters can represent more than one sin. Crispin could be sloth or envy. Drake could be pride, greed, or gluttony, you know, for example. But I'm just going to choose a character for each sin, the sin that really kind of popped out for me, and then I'll talk about how I believe um, Aaron represents hope. So first, I'm going to start with Amy, who to me represents envy. Amy is the only girl among the family, like among the siblings. She has three brothers, and honestly, I cannot remember, but I believe Amy is, you know, not only the only girl, but is also the youngest in the family. And I kind of get the impression that she's been a little jealous of her brothers. So, for example, after Tariq dies and Aaron has moved everyone to the other room, the group, again, like I said, start arguing about who should make a run for the cars. And at one point, you even hear Amy, who's been arguing with everyone as well, um, and she's, like, sitting in the corner crying and yelling. And she says that she should be the one who runs for the cars. You know, Amy kind of pipes up, and you hear her say, You guys never give me any credit for anything. And then right after everyone decides, okay, Amy can make a run for it. She's the one who's going to go run and try to get to the cars. She looks at her dad, and she's like, I can do this, Daddy. So throughout the chaos that is going on, you have Amy, like, in the corner crying and shouting about how no one gives her credit for any of the things that she does, implying to me that her brothers possibly get credit and recognition for the things that they do and the things they achieve, but she feels like she's always kind of looked over. You know, to me, she's envious of her brothers, feeling like they are treated probably better over her, like she's never going to be as good as them, like as you know, as successful as them or whatever else that she's actually feeling. 
but for me, it's obvious that Amy is kind of envious of her brothers. And to me, she represents the sin of envy. So, like I said, you know, she's very quick to be like, you never give me credit for anything, you know, like just implying that like, oh, to me, what I'm hearing is I don't get credit for anything, but the boys always get credit for everything. They get recognized for what they're doing. To me, again, like I said, she represents envy. Next, I'm going to have to actually combine a few of these people together because of their interactions with one another. They kind of cross over and intertwine. So it'll just be easier for me to kind of go over the two scenes I need to go over and then explain separately who each person represents, like what sin they represent and why. So we have a short, very short interaction between Drake and his wife um, after they meet Aaron, who is Crispin's girlfriend. Kelly, where'd your brother find that girl? Drake, I don't know. Student? Former student? Kelly, huh. Drake, current student? Kelly, I thought she was kind of annoying. Then during dinner, Drake and Kelly are actually talking to Tariq. Well, they're not really talking to Tariq. They're kind of talking at Tariq. Drake, so Tariq, what do you do? Tariq, uh, I'm a filmmaker. Drake, is that right? Kelly, wow. Amy, yeah, he's really good. Drake, I don't think I know any filmmakers. Tariq, not a lot of us out there. Drake, that's interesting. Tariq, well, I've only made... Drake, cutting him off. On TV? Tariq, not on TV. I've only made one documentary. It was at the Cleveland Underground Film Festival, 2008. Drake, what is an underground film festival? Do they show the movies underground? Tariq, no, no, no. They show them above ground, but they... Amy, it's really intellectual. They show intellectual films. Drake, like an intellectual film festival. I just think... Do you do commercials? Because those are my favorite. Tariq, uh-uh. Amy, no, he doesn't do commercials. Drake, really? Because I just think that is the height of the art form these days. It is short, punchy. You really got to just zing the ideas on in there. Kelly, that's why I watch TV these days. Drake, nah, it's better than the shows now. Amy, well, he makes documentaries, so... Tariq, it's different. Drake, yeah, but I think I've seen documentary commercials. I don't think they have to be limited to any particular thing. It's not, uh, you know, I mean, the starving artist thing just never made sense to me. I just think you should consider it, Tariq. Tariq, sure. So first, um, I'm going to talk about Kelly, and I kind of put her as gluttony. Now, gluttony doesn't always mean it doesn't just mean excessive like consumption of food or drink it actually means like excessive consumption of everything like excessive consumption of you know wealth material items even like the excessive pursuit for like social status i mean we've all heard the term a glutton for punishment gluttony just means like excessive consumption even to the point of obsession of things in general and I believe Kelly is a good represent, uh, representation of this. You know, we know she has, so there's a, that scene where she's talking to Drake. Like, we know she has a prescription to Vicodin because Drake asks her for one. But to me, the implication is that she takes them, like she has a prescription for them, but doesn't really need them. And then on top of it, she's consuming, like, glasses of wine and drinking wine on top of it, which we all know you shouldn't mix those two together. Also, she enjoys her status and the fact that she has money. Like, she's a glutton for money. Personally, I believe she married Drake for his money. Um, that's what it seems like to me. You know, when Kelly actually makes a run for it, she's running away from the chaos and leaves Drake behind, only caring about herself. Drake, not even knowing that Kelly is dead, plans to go and look for Kelly. Drake loves Kelly. Kelly loves Drake's money, in my opinion. So for me, Kelly represents the sin of gluttony because she is a glutton, uh, glutton for money. Like, she likes the status of being rich. Like, she, to her, that's what's important. Next, I'd say that Tariq represents greed. He is a nice guy on the surface, but personally, I believe he has an ulterior motive um, as to why he's dating Amy. I mean, he is a struggling filmmaker, 
He's only made one film, which was a few years back, that made it into one film festival. To me, it's like, is it really a coincidence that he's dating Amy, a girl who comes from money? I mean, you do need funds to make movies. Even low-budget indie films need money to be made. And Amy is obviously infatuated with Tariq and does come off as a little naive. You know, she would be easy to manipulate to, quote, lend him, you know, the money to make his next film. So, like I said, on the surface, I think Tariq is a nice guy, but I don't think it's a coincidence that he's a, you know, quote, struggling, you know, filmmaker and is dating a girl who comes from a lot of money and has a lot of money. So, to me, Tariq represents greed because his eyes on Amy's money to help him, you know, possibly fund his next film. I hope that all makes sense. And Drake, Drake is pride through and through. As soon as I heard this guy talk, I was like, wow, this guy has a holier-than-thou complex. Like, the way he talks to people, and it's like he doesn't even talk to people. He talks down to everyone. Like, we're Tariq, he's putting him down for being a filmmaker, you know, because he's only made one movie. He's a, you know, he's only done one movie. He's a, you know, starving artist or a struggling filmmaker or whatever he says. You know, even suggesting commercials, like knowing damn well that like commercials are, I guess, the bottom of the barrel in the filmmaking world. Like you're trying to work your way up from commercials to movies, not go back down. Like, so for him to suggest that is just him being an asshole. And it's just another way of like him showing how he thinks he's better than everyone. Is like, oh, you should do commercials, you know? And then he talks down to like Crispin right after he talks down to Tariq for being a professor whose girlfriend used to be his TA, making it perfectly clear how inappropriate that is. Even though Crispin and Aaron have actually acknowledged this, like they know that this was inappropriate, which is why she stopped being his TA was because they were having a relationship. Drake has to make sure to voice his opinion, no matter what. He also talks, like, over people. Like, it's very hard for anyone to get a word in when Drake is talking. He's just so full of himself and arrogant and doesn't really care about anyone else's feelings. It's kind of, like, all about Drake. You know, like I said, he just talks down to people. He thinks so highly of himself. You know, the world revolves around Drake. And so for me, Drake definitely represents pride because he's such an arrogant ass. Okay, so I'm going to move on to Crispin. And for me, he represents sloth. Now, sloth isn't just about laziness. Like, it's also about people. So it is about laziness. But it's also about people, like, not utilizing their talents, not really going for it. Kind of like that idea, like, taking the easy route, like, it is about laziness, but it's about laziness about other stuff, not just people who, like, sit on the couch all day, but, like, don't, like I said, don't go for it. They take the easy route, you know, like, why even try, you know, be, you know, you can't fail if you don't try kind of idea. But for Crispin, like, he kind of has all those aspects to him. Like, we had the fellowship, you know, scene with Paul, his dad, where it doesn't, to me, it doesn't even sound like he tried too hard for it. Like, he didn't really apply himself. So we have that that kind of shows he represents sloth. Then we have the fact that Crispin didn't even want to get his hands dirty when everything went down. Because, like I said, we find out that Felix and Crispin planned this whole thing. They planned the murder so they could get, you know, their inheritance sooner because for whatever reason. But once shit went down, Crispin ran. Like he fled and hid until he thought everything was over. To the point, like, towards the end, he actually calls Felix, not realizing that it's Aaron who answers the phone. Felix? Hey, Felix, is it all done in there or what? I saw my signal come back on. Is it over? Look, I know you're pissed at me for not helping out. I just couldn't do it. I told you this might happen. I saw Mom and the blood and... You know I'm a pacifist. I can't deal with the violent stuff. Come on, I can hear you breathing on the other end of the phone. Felix, it's fucking freezing out here. I'm coming back inside. So like I said, when shit actually went down and chaos ensued, Crispin just ran away until all the hard stuff was over so he wouldn't have to get his hands dirty. He wouldn't have to do any of the hard work. He was in on this whole thing, like the whole time, but didn't have the guts to step up and actually help Felix 
leaving it all up to Felix to do the dirty work. So for me, Crispin definitely represents sloth. Like to me, that's there's other aspects that show that he's lazy, but here's a great example of how lazy he is, is that he plots with Felix to kill his family, yet when push comes to shove and shit goes down, you know, when his fight or flight mode goes, he totally, you know, flees and runs and hides and then makes Felix do all the dirty work. Okay, so moving on to Felix, who I believe represents wrath. So once we figure out that he's, you know, in on this whole thing, like he is, you know, kind of, you know, he's one of the conspirators against murdering his family. He has a conversation with um, the guy who's wearing the lamb mask and he gets very angry with him very quickly. And I mean, other parts of the movie, he gets very angry. But here's a great example as to why I believe Felix represents wrath. Felix, whoa, 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 wait, don't do that. You don't want your DNA in here, man. Lamb mask. I'll clean it up later, just like the rest of this fucking mess. Felix, excuse me? You say that like it's my fault. Listen, just so we're perfectly clear, I just had to kill my own brother because you guys keep getting beat up by some girl. I had to stab my brother more than once. You're supposed to do that. For all the good you guys did in here, you could have stayed outside with your fucking crossbows. So for one, not only is Felix, like, angry with his hired killers for not doing, you know, their job correctly, you know, to the point that he's just yelling at them and screaming at them. He's obviously angry enough with his family to the point of plotting to kill them. Like, I'm wondering for whatever reason that maybe Felix and Crispin were cut off. Like, you know, maybe they were cut off from the money and maybe Amy and Drake keep getting money. I don't know. But we do know that Felix holds a lot of resentment and anger that he lashes out on the hired assassins. Like, he's holding this anger within him, you know, that he lashes out on the killers because they couldn't do the job that he had hired them to do, and he ends up having to kill his brother. And he's angry enough to, like, plot this whole thing in order to get his inheritance. So, for me, I definitely see that Felix represents wrath because he is very angry with again like for example you know the way he just lashes out on the guy wearing the lamb mask one of the killers not only that but he's so angry with his family that he actually plots to kill them so i hope that all makes sense last i'm going to um go over lust who would be z z to me represents lust now, she is, like, in on the whole thing, working with Felix to, like, help him plot the murder of Felix's family. So she's in on this. She's going along with it. And after, so he has a conversation with one of the guys. I think it's the fox mask. And he leaves. And this is after his mom has been murdered. Felix's mom has been murdered. And Z and Felix are actually in his parents' room on the bed where his mother is lying there dead. Felix. Not really in the mood right now, Z. Z, come on. I'll make it quick. I want you to fuck me on this bed right now next to your dead mom. Felix, what? Why would you even say something like that? Z, you never want to do anything interesting. Felix, I don't think that's a fair criticism. Z, fuck me next to your mom then. Felix, this conversation is over. So, Z is more interested with having sex with Felix, and not even having sex with Felix, you know, she's interested in having sex with him on the bed where his dead mother is. Like, she's more concerned about, you know, getting some than other, you know, than what's actually going on, you know, like, hey, you still have a murder you have to do, but you know, her focus is on sex. Like, she wants to give in to her sexual desires, you know, rather than completing the task at hand. You know, lust is about sex and passion and giving into your sexual urges, wants, and desires. And for me, Z represents this. And definitely this scene is a great example of how she represents lust because here they are plotting an entire murder of Felix's family 
his mom's dead on laying on this bed dead. And Z's like, yeah, yeah, let's have sex right now on this bed. You know, like I want to give into my sexual desires right now. So for me, Z definitely represents lust. So now I'm going to move on to Aaron. Um, and with all, you know, when you think about it, like with all the evil within the world, with all these sins that go on in the world, we can only hold on to hope. And Aaron is the light at the end of the tunnel. So for me, Aaron represents hope. So when Tariq is killed, Aaron kind of jumps into survival mode, like helping everyone get into another room, get to safety for the time being, that is. And she starts to like form a plan and start thinking ahead. And at one point, she even goes upstairs and she's kind of talking to Crispin. Crispin, Aaron, what are you doing? Aaron, we need to make sure all the doors and windows are locked. Crispin, what? Babe, hey, what are you doing? Aaron, some places, if you text 911, they get it as a voicemail. Even if you have one bar, you can send a text. Crispin, these things are useless. Aaron, I'll have to keep trying. And... Aaron actually spends a majority of the movie, like, trying to keep the place safe, like, forge weapons. Like I said, she locks all the doors and windows. She decides to place booby traps. You know, she doesn't really panic or freak out at any point. She kind of, like, stays calm and just, you know, fights to stay alive and fights to keep others alive, which is why I say she's hope. So, later on, Z is actually helping Aaron make booby traps. Z, can I ask you something? How'd you learn all this stuff? Aaron, well, I had kind of a weird childhood. I grew up on a survivalist compound. I haven't even told Crispin yet. Z, good answer. Aaron, well, I guess when I was born, my dad got kind of paranoid. He was just convinced that the world was going to run out of resources in a matter of years. Found a lot of guys who agreed with him, and we moved to the outback. You know, basically, if things got overpopulated, even out there, he wanted me to be able to take care of myself. Moved to the States with my mom when I was 15. So, like I said, like, Aaron, to me, represents hope. So, you know, she's, t you know, the scene with Crispin, like, her first reaction is, we're going to, you know, lock doors and windows. I'm going to try to get 911, get a hold of 911 to get help. And then throughout the whole movie, she's, like, fighting for survival, fighting to save people. She's, like, forging weapons, making booby traps. And then we find out why. So, for me, Aaron is not your typical, like, final girl, like, she totally kicks ass, like, she totally kicks ass when she fights back, like, she's not just someone who was at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, kind of by choice and thrusted into chaos, having to fight for survival, who by chance and out of luck was able to, like, outsmart the killer, you know, she's been preparing herself for this kind of situation for years, yeah, she was at the wrong place at the wrong time, thrusted into a situation that was a fight for survival, but she was calm and smart and always stayed one step ahead of the killer because she had been raised at her survivalist compound. She was raised to be ready for this type of situation, which is why I say, again, another reason why I say she represents hope, you know, hope for survival. You know, you're rooting for her to kill the killers and to save as many people as she can. And many of the others kind of look up to her as like a beacon of hope. Like once she takes charge and they see that like she's forging weapons, she's saying, hey, this is what we got to do. She's forming a plan. They're setting booby traps. They all look to her like she's that ray of hope for them. You know, they all see how strong and smart she is when, again, shit goes down. She doesn't panic. She just goes, you know, when her fight or flight mode is, you know, when she, <laughs> when it comes to fight or flight, she immediately chooses fight. and. Like I said, the others actually see her as a leader, like someone who can save them and get them all out of this mess. Like, mess, sorry. Another example of how Aaron is seen as hope. So, like I said, I love the fact that Aaron's not your fine, like your typical final girl. Like, she is a final girl and she kicks ass, like many final girls before her. But this wasn't, you know, she was raised at a survivalist compound. So, she was, she's always been prepared for this kind of situation to fight for survival and to know how to fight for her survival. So for me, she represents hope because she doesn't panic. She stays calm. Let's forge weapons. Let's form a plan. I'm going to save as many people as possible. And everyone actually looks to her as that like beacon of hope. So I hope that all makes sense that Aaron to me represents hope. Okay. Since my voice is starting to go and I'm getting hoarse, I'm going to move on to my reviews. Collider says, 
Wingard uses the country house perfectly as a setting. It's in the middle of nowhere, it's nighttime, and the victims don't know how many psychos are inside and outside the house. But the house offers its own dangers with narrow corridors and too many large windowed rooms where the threat could come from almost any direction. The family would be lost without Aaron, and that's where Wingard and screenwriter Simon Barrett makes their first smart play. Aaron isn't the horror staper survival girl who gets lucky. She's a survivalist girl, and her presence gives the audience someone to root for rather than someone who occasionally kicks the killer and scampers away to hide. When your next gets you cheering, it's for Aaron. Den of Geek says, If you're nitpicking, you could say that your next is essentially a collection of set pieces, although then this is a criticism you can apply to 99% of slasher movies. But the important thing is that there is not a duff one in the whole bunch. Nearly every scene is built around a brilliant idea where most modern horrors are lucky to have more than a couple. The result is one of the most confident scary movies in years, one that deserves to be seen on the big screen with a big audience, as you can find. Like the best of the slasher genre, it perfectly straddles the border between stupid and clever before turning everything up to an 11. So overall, this movie is an intense and disturbing home invasion slasher flick that has some pretty brutal and bloody kills. This movie will have you laughing at times, but will also terrify you, keeping you on the edge of your seat. The house may be huge, but it feels very confined and claustrophobic at times because you can't escape it. You feel as if you're trapped in the house with this entire family. Barbara Crampton was, like always, phenomenal in the role of the matriarch Aubrey. She was so believable, and you really empathized with her at times. And I loved learning that this was Miss Crampton's, like, comeback movie like back to the horror genre, you know, she left in the 90s, got married, raised a beautiful family, and then was, you know, kind of out of the movies for a little bit. And then she was offered the part of Aubrey and knocked it out of the park. Like she is such a talented actress, and I'm happy to see her back in movies, especially back in the horror genre. This woman is a scream queen and an icon through and through. If you haven't seen this movie, you should. This was actually a first-time watch for me, and I can't believe it took me this long to watch this movie. It's so good. I really enjoyed the story, the twists, the kills, and the fact that they took the final girl trope and turned it upside down on its head. Aaron is a kick-ass, take-no-prisoners final girl and should be recognized as such. So I'm going to wrap it up for today. Thank you again for joining me here on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie. Again, I'm your host, Sarah Sin. Thank you for sticking around as I discuss horror history, psychology, and mental health within horror movies. Hope you enjoy the show. Again, thank you for listening. And remember, don't forget to wish Miss Barbara Crampton a happy birthday. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a horror movie out there for everyone to enjoy. So thank you.